Hello, James Kenny here, and welcome to my podcast, Land of the Golden Sunset, the evolution of the Irish from biblical times. This is episode number 24, entitled The Gaelic League, Douglas Hyde, the Gaelic Athletic Association, and the 1916 Rising. It's about Ireland's evolution in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. I hope you like this and that you will share with others on social media. And if you wish to become a patron, you can do so by visiting www.landofthegoldensunset.podbean.com. Very little progress was made in the British Parliament after Parnell's death to secure home rule for Ireland. However, another Irish Land Act was introduced in 1896, whereby Irish farmers could obtain credit from the government to purchase their farms, if the landlord was willing to sell. But its most important measure was the establishment of county and district councils. Thus, at last, this substitute, although a very small measure of home rule, it took local government out of the hands of the gentry landlords by the establishment of county councils elected by the people. The councils, urban and rural, being the guardians of their districts. Certain boroughs had a mayor, aldermen and councillors, empowered to levy rates to defray the cost of administration, thus taking it out of the hands of English and transferring some power to the Irish people. In the meantime, a national organisation called the United Irish League was founded to press the landlords to consent to the buyout by their tenants. The Chief Secretary, George Windham, prepared an act to that end. So this most important measure in favour of Ireland was passed by the English Parliament to restore the land of Ireland to the people of Ireland. The bill, likewise, provided for the reinstatement of all the tenants evicted during the 25 years preceding the Act. George Windham, PC, 1863-1913, was a British Conservative politician and statesman. In 1898, Windham was appointed Under Secretary of State for War under Lord Salisbury, which he remained until 1900. He was closely involved in Irish affairs at two points, having been Private Secretary to Arthur Balfour during the years around 1890, when Balfour was Chief Secretary of Ireland. Windham was himself made Chief Secretary by Salisbury in 1900. He continued in this position after Balfour succeeded as Prime Minister in July 1902, but was taken into Cabinet and sworn a member of the Privy Council on the 11th of August 1902. Windham furthered the 1902 Land Conference and also successfully saw the significant Land Purchase Ireland Act 1903 into law. This change in the law ushered in the most radical change in history in Ireland's land ownership. Before it, 
Ireland's land was largely owned by landlords. Within years of the Axe, most of the land was owned by their former tenants, who had been supported in their purchases by government subsidies. This could, without exaggeration, be called the most radical change in Irish life in recent history. He brought forward a devolution system to deal with the Home Rule question, coordinated with the Irish Reform Association, conceived by his permanent undersecretary, Sir Anthony MacDonald, and with the approval of the Lord Lieutenant, the Earl of Dudley. Windham died suddenly in June 1913 in Paris, aged 49 years, of a blood clot. He was survived by his wife and one son. The success of the Land Conference resulted in the enactment of the Land Purchase Ireland Act 1903, with William O'Brien MP being the leader of the tenant representation during the conference. O'Brien resigned from his Irish Parliamentary Party in November 1903, claiming he was making no headway with his policy of conciliation. O'Brien's defiance of the party encouraged the Landlord Land Conference Committee to summon a meeting in Dublin in early 1904, attended by 300 of the leading Irish gentry and landlords, who resolved themselves into the Irish Reform Association, led by the Earl of Dunraven, who had presided over the Land Conference and of that triumph of conciliation. The United Irish League was a nationalist political party in Ireland, launched on the 23rd of January 1898 with the motto, The Land for the People. Its objective to be achieved through agrarian agitation and land reform, compelling larger grazer farmers to surrender their lands for redistribution among the small tenant farmers. Founded and initiated at Westport, County Mayo by William O'Brien, it was supported by Michael Davitt, MP, John Dillon, MP, who worded its constitution, Timothy Harrington, MP, John O'Connor Power, MP, and the Catholic clergy of the district. By 1900, it had expanded to be represented by 462 branches in 25 counties. In ridding the country of landlordism, the people were taking the most effective steps to secure national self-government. On the 14th of November 1903, the Irish Land Purchase Act went into effect. It was also known as the Wyndham Land Act. Would anyone say that it was a coincidence that Lyndham was the great-grandson of Lord Edward Fitzgerald? The steps taken by the Irish after the death of Parnell were positive. They began forming discussion groups, the chief topic of which was Ireland's future, and it was noticeable that they were bravely holding their heads high and proudly displaying defiance to the dwindling English penal laws. One of these groups came together to promote the native language, headed by the son of a Protestant rector from French Park, County Roscommon. His name was Douglas Ross Hyde. Born in Castle Ray in 1860, his early education was chiefly under the tuition of his father, he acquired a liking for the native Gaelic, which he picked up from the locals. His father was anxious for him to become a minister of his church, but Douglas decided against that and instead entered Trinity College Dublin, 
where he became fluent in French, Latin, German, Greek and Hebrew, graduating in 1884 as a moderator in modern literature. A medalist of the College Historical Society, he was elected its president in 1931. His passion for Irish, already a language in severe decline, led him to help found the Gaelic League, or in Irish, Conra Naguelga, in 1893. Hyde married German-born but British-raised Lucy Kurtz in 1893. The couple had two daughters, Nula and Una. In 1888, Douglas Hyde travelled abroad to Canada, where he was appointed professor at the University of New Brunswick. When he returned to Ireland, he devoted much of his time and energy to the native language and published a collection of folk tales collected from native Gaelic speakers throughout the country. He also published many articles and other material in Gaelic in 1889. In 1892, he became president of the National Literary Society, and a year later, with his cooperation and participation, the Gaelic League was founded, with Douglas Hyde as its president. With great diligence, he succeeded in establishing over 400 branches throughout the country within 10 years. In 1902, he became professor of modern Irish at University College Dublin, a post he held for 23 years. Then, in 1938, he was chosen as the first president of Ireland under the new constitution. He had already served as a senator of the Irish Free State in 1926 and in 1937. He remained president until 1945, when his term of office expired. Douglas Hyde died in Dublin on the 12th of July 1949 and is interred in a graveyard near French Park, County Roscommon. Parallel with the founding of the Gaelic League, another group of people came together to promote the national games. They congregated at Hayes' Hotel in Thurles, County Tipperary and formed the Gaelic Athletic Association on the 1st of November 1884. Most of the credit for this goes to Michael Cusick and Morris Davin, lending considerable support Joseph K. Bracken, Thomas St. George McCarthy, a district inspector in the Royal Irish Constabulary, P.J. Ryan of Tipperary, John Wise Power and John McKay. The first patrons were Archbishop Croke, Charles Stuart Parnell and Michael Davitt. In 1887, the first All-Ireland Hurling and Football Championships were played and these competitions have been played annually ever since. In 1913, some wasteland at Jones's Road, Dublin was bought for £3,500 and called Croke Park. This became the GAA's headquarters and has become one of the finest stadiums in the country and a showpiece for Gaelic games. The founding of the GAA, the largest amateur sports body in the world, soon had branches springing up throughout the land. And so vigorous was the enthusiasm displayed that it caused unease among the ascendancy classes, who could not bear to see the once downtrodden natives begin, at last, to assert themselves and openly come together 
to form local teams and clubs and to merge with the Gaelic League in organising Feshina for the promotion of Irish traditional music and step dancing and Gaelic speech, songs, drama and the holding of the native games of hurling played with a small leather ball and ashwood sticks measuring three feet long and having a wide boss at the end. The castle authorities now became worried when all this new activity among the Catholics was reported to them. They said such sticks could be substituted for rifle drilling and for training subversives in the use of arms right under the noses of the authorities. The English had their paid informers, as always, who reported that certain members of the GAA were also in the IRB. This information caused the castle authorities to issue instructions to the local constabulary to smash and disrupt all such gatherings wherever they occurred. The attempts at smashing their meetings were resisted with determination. Now that a measure of freedom had been secured, they stood up to the best attempts to disrupt them, with bleeding and cut heads and bruised bodies limping home on many occasions. They vowed vengeance on the English-controlled constabulary and all the castles set. In fact, the disruption of the meetings had the reverse effect to that which was intended. It drove young athletes in their hundreds into illegal organizations, asking, what can we do to stop this? The answer came from the organizers of the IRB, whose leaders had decided that home rule could not be achieved by peaceful means, so they drilled and trained like regular soldiers on every possible occasion, without coming to the attention of the authorities. Arms were purchased abroad, mostly in Germany. Information was passed that an uprising was planned for Easter 1916. On the 26th of July 1914, Erskine Childers landed a consignment of arms at Hoth from his yacht, the Asgard. They were collected by a body of IRB and others, which included Kieran and James Kenny, an uncle and cousin of my late father. They marched back with the guns and munitions, but were accosted by a regiment of British army. The soldiers failed to disarm the Irish and took their frustration out on innocent civilians by deliberately firing into a crowd on the quayside in Dublin, killing three and wounding about 40 people, men, women and children. The hope of home rule for Ireland now seemed doomed when the First World War started in Europe and it was agreed on the 18th of September 1914 that the matter of home rule should be suspended until the war was ended. The differences between both sides were shelved, and Irish men of all religions and none joined up and marched together to the Somme. Religion did not matter to the Irish when they fought side by side against the common enemy. They died together too, in the trenches and on the battlefield, as an Irish regiment fighting for the freedom of small nations. It is a strange irony that they fought together on Flanders Field and in the trenches on foreign lands, but when back home they could not agree to live in peace and harmony. Unionists wanted to remain British and did not want home rule, while nationalists wanted to be rid of the English, following 700 years of penal law misery. The Unionists have an inbuilt fear of losing their territory in Ulster, land which was secured by subterfuge 
after the flight of the earls, when Sir Arthur Chichester, the English agent, in 1607, extirpated the native Irish and escheated their land in the sham conspiracy, handing it over to foreigners whose progeny continued to march in celebration on their annual 12th of July marches. These same Orangemen were planning to take up arms and to fight against the English to prevent the granting of home rule. They said at the time, Ulster will fight and Ulster will be right. They did not want the Union abolished, nor did they want Ireland to become a nation once again. To appease the Orange Protestants of Ulster, Lloyd George, the British Prime Minister in 1921, had mapped off six of the nine counties in the northeast of the province of Ulster, which was then declared British territory. A new parliament for Northern Ireland, named Stormont, was established and was referred to as a Protestant Parliament for a Protestant people. They soon began to assert their newly found bigoted authority over the Catholic nationalists, who were denied jobs and had to emigrate to find work, when printed notices were displayed in Protestant-run workplaces which read, No Catholics need apply. Irish history has clearly shown over the centuries that evil deeds do not prosper the perpetrators. Friction began to build up among the nationalists because of the awful blatant discrimination practised against them. Their elected representatives at Stormont were largely ignored and treated as a joke. This went on until 1963 when a civil rights campaign was launched in Dungannon, County Tyrone. But well before 1921, in Dublin, however, a group of brave, impetuous and maybe foolhardy Irishmen were gathering around a long table in the act of signing their own death warrants, but they did not know it at the time. They assembled and signed the Proclamation of the Irish Republic, which was read by Padraig Pierce outside the General Post Office with the intention of putting its sentiments into practice by the Irish Volunteer Force to accomplish their dream of a united Ireland, a free Ireland from the centre to the sea, north, south, east and west, while Britain was fighting a war against Germany from the 4th of August 1914 to the 11th of November 1918. Many times before the Irish had said, Britain's difficulty is Ireland's opportunity. At last the time had arrived to put that slogan to the test, when a rebellion was planned to take place at Easter 1916. Members of the volunteer forces throughout the nation were alerted to be on the readiness. However, one of their leaders in Dublin thought it unwise and placed a notice in the national newspapers, cancelling the planned uprising. His name was Owen MacNeill, founder of the Irish Volunteers and vice president of the Gaelic League. The Dublin City Volunteers ignored the notice and on Easter Monday, the 24th of April 1916, the first shots were fired in an attempt to strike for Ireland's long-sought freedom. The General Post Office in the centre of O'Connell Street was the headquarters of the battalion whose signatures were appended to the proclamation and they opened fire with deadly force and accuracy at the British Cavalry Regiment trooping along the wide O'Connell Street and three British soldiers were killed. 
Other outposts were manned in a similar way at the Four Courts, Boland's Mills, Jacob's Factory, the South Dublin Union, the distillery in Marabone Lane, and in St. Stephen's Green. Very speedily, the British shipped reinforcements from England to Dublin with heavy guns, artillery, and a gunboat to quell the uprising, and Dublin soon was a blazing inferno, with shops and other large buildings in the centre city area being demolished by shells and fire. Buildings were crumbling all around the area, and it soon became an extremely dangerous war zone. There was street fighting on the routes into the city centre, where the volunteers slowed the British advance and inflicted many casualties. Elsewhere in Dublin, the fighting mainly consisted of sniping and long-range gun battles. The main volunteer positions were gradually surrounded and bombarded with artillery. There were isolated actions in other parts of Ireland, but the volunteer leader Owen MacNeill had issued a countermand in a bid to halt the rising, which greatly reduced the number of rebels who mobilised. The futility of a few hundred volunteers taking on the might of British armed forces soon became apparent. The leaders decided that they had made their stand and surrendered. They were quickly taken into custody, court-martialed, and sentenced to death. My father's uncle, 29-year-old Kieran Kenny, and his cousin James Kenny, were stationed with the garrison at Marrowbone Lane Distillery. Kieran was the squad leader, and James was quartermaster. Both had received their commissions several weeks before the uprising. They were members of A Company, 4th Dublin Brigade. This was the very last garrison to surrender on the Saturday, 29th of April, 1916, on the intervention of their commandant, Eamon Kant, who with the British officer, Sir Francis Vane, informed the volunteers that all the others had surrendered, and it was futile to continue. The garrison marched out proudly, joined the South Dublin Union garrison, and eventually were put on board cattle boats and shipped into exile to the British prison camps at Knotsfort and Frangok. About 3,500 people were taken prisoner by the British, and 1,800 of them were sent to internment camps or prisons in Britain. Patrick Henry Pierce, 1879 to 1916, aka Podrig or was an Irish teacher, barrister, poet, writer, nationalist, republican political activist, and revolutionary who was one of the leaders of the Easter Rising 1916. Following his execution, along with 15 others, Pierce came to be seen by many as the embodiment of the rebellion. Pierce grew up surrounded by books. His father had had very little formal education, but was self-educated. Pierce was radicalised from an early age. He recalls that at the age of 10 he prayed to God, promising him he would dedicate his life to Irish independence. Pierce's early heroes were ancient Gaelic folk heroes such as Cú Cullen, though in his thirties he began to take a strong interest in the leaders of past republican movements such as the United Irishmen, Wolf Tone and Robert Emmett. Pierce soon became involved in the Gaelic revival. In 1896, at the age of 16, he joined the Gaelic League and in 1903, at the age of 23, he became editor of its newspaper, on Clive Sullis, The Sword of Light. 
In 1900, Pierce was awarded a BA in Modern Languages, Irish, English and French, by the Royal University of Ireland, for which he had studied for two years privately and for one at University College Dublin. In the same year he was enrolled as a barrister at law at the King's Inns. Pierce was called to the bar in 1901. In 1905, Pierce represented Neil McBride, a poet and songwriter from County Donegal, who had been fined for having his name displayed in illegible writing, that is Irish, on his donkey cart. The appeal was heard before the Court of King's Bench in Dublin. It was Pierce's first and only court appearance as a barrister. The case was lost, but it became a symbol of his struggle for Irish independence. In his 27th of June 1905, on Clive Sulla's column, Pierce wrote of the decision. It was in effect decided that Irish is a foreign language on the same level with Yiddish. Podrick Pierce founded St. Endes College in September 1908, where he put his views on Irish education into practice. In November 1913, Podrick Pierce was invited to the inaugural meeting of the Irish Volunteers, formed in reaction to the creation of the Ulster Volunteers, whose aim was to secure and maintain the rights and liberties common to the whole people of Ireland. In an article entitled The Coming Revolution, November 1913, Pierce wrote, As to what your work as an Irish nationalist is to be, I cannot conjecture. I know what mine is to be, and would have you know yours, and buckle yourself to it. And it may be, nay, it is, that your and mine will lead us to a common meeting place, and that on a certain day we shall stand together, with many more beside us, ready for a greater adventure than any of us has yet had, a trial and a triumph to be endured and achieved in common. Their Home Rule Bill just failed to pass the House of Lords, but the Lords' diminished power under the Parliament Act 1911 meant that the bill could only be delayed, not stopped. It was placed on the statute books by royal assent in September 1914, but its implementation was suspended for the duration of the First World War. In December 1913, Bulmer Hobson swore Pierce into the secret Irish Republican Brotherhood, an organisation dedicated to the overthrow of British rule in Ireland and its replacement with an Irish Republic. He was soon co-opted onto the IRB's Supreme Council by Tom Clark. Pierce was then one of many people who were members of both the IRB and the Volunteers. When he became the Volunteers Director of Military Organisation in 1914, he was the highest-ranking volunteer in the IRB membership and instrumental in the latter's commandeering of the remaining minority of the Volunteers for the purpose of the rebellion. By 1915, he was on the IRB's Supreme Council and its Secret Military Council, the core group that began planning for the rising while war raged on the European Western Front. On the 1st of August 1915, Pierce gave a graveside oration at the funeral of the Fenian, Jeremiah O'Donovan Rossa. He was the first Republican to be filmed giving an oration. It closed with the words, Our foes are strong and wise and wary, 
but strong and wise and wary as they are, they cannot undo the miracles of God who ripens in the hearts of young men the seed sown by the young men of a former generation. And the seeds sown by the young men of 65 and 67 are coming to their miraculous ripening today. Rulers and defenders of the realm had need to be wary if they would guard against such process. Life springs from death, and from the graves of patriot men and women spring living nations. The defenders of this realm have worked well in secret and in the open. They think that they have pacified Ireland. They think that they have purchased half of us and intimidated the other half. They think that they have foreseen everything, think that they have provided against everything. But the fools, the fools, the fools, they have left for us our Fenian dead. And while Ireland holds these graves, Ireland unfree shall never be at peace. Reprisals against the leaders were swift and merciless. On May the 3rd, 1916, the first three of those who had signed the proclamation were taken out and shot. Their names were Podrick Pierce, Tom Clark and Thomas McDonough. The following day, four more of the signatories were shot to death. Their names were Edward Daly, Willie Pierce, brother of Podrick, Michael Hanrahan and Joseph Plunkett. On the 5th of May, John McBride and on the 8th of May, the vengeance was brought down on Eamon Kent Con Colbert, Michael Mallon, Sean Houston, while Thomas Kent was executed in Cork the following day. The executions continued up to the 12th of May, when two more volunteers and signatories to the proclamation were shot dead, namely James Connolly and Sean McDermott. James Connolly, who was strapped to a chair and shot when he could not stand because of injuries sustained while defending the General Post Office. 485 people died in the uprising. 260 were civilians, 143 were British military and police personnel, and 82 were Irish volunteers, including the 16 signatories executed for their roles in the rising. More than 2,600 people were wounded. Many of the civilians were killed or wounded by British artillery fire or were mistaken for rebels. Others were caught in the crossfire during firefights between the British and the volunteers. Sir Roger Casement, who had tried unsuccessfully to recruit an insurgent force among Irish-born prisoners of war from the Irish Brigade in Germany, was tried in London for high treason and hanged at Pentonville Prison on the 3rd of August 1916. Sir John Maxwell, the general officer commanding the British forces in Ireland, sent a telegram to H.A. Asquith, then Prime Minister, advising him not to return the bodies of the Pierce brothers to their family, saying Irish sentimentality will turn these graves into martyrs' shrines, to which annual processions will be made, which would cause constant irritation in this country. Padraig Pierce gave his last instruction for the publication of his writing, at Arbor Hill Military Detention Barracks, Dublin, on the 1st of May 1916. Maxwell also suppressed a letter from Pierce to his mother, and two poems. He submitted copies of them also to the Prime Minister, Asquith, saying that some of the content was objectionable. The military cemetery at Arbor Hill is the last resting place of 14 of the executed leaders of the 1916 Rising. There is an adjoining church, the chapel for Arbor Hill Prison, 
At the rear of the church lies the old cemetery containing memorials to British military personnel. The clear focus of Arbor Hill, however, is the legend of the rising. Among those buried here are Padraig Pierce, James Connolly and Major John McBride. Their bodies were put into an unmarked pit and covered with quicklime, but their grave has now been saved from the obscurity with an impressive memorial inscribed in both English and Irish. James Connolly, 1868, was born at Cowgate in Edinburgh. He worked from the age of 11 because he came from a very poor family. Three years later he joined the British Army, giving a false birth date. He was transferred to Dublin in 1889, where he met and married Lily Reynolds when they were in their 20s. They returned to live in Edinburgh, where he became interested in the Scottish Socialist Federation, but returned to Dublin in 1896 as a paid organiser of the Dublin Socialist Club, from which he founded the Irish Socialist Republican Party. Two years later, he launched a weekly newspaper called Workers' Republic. James Connolly toured America in 1902 and 03, but on arriving back home, he decided that New York was the place to be. So he emigrated and founded the Irish Socialist Federation there in 1907 and contributed articles to the monthly journal The Harp. Never a man to settle in one place for long, he returned to Ireland in 1910 and published Labour, Nationality and Religion and Labour in Irish History. With Jim Larkin, Connolly became organiser of the Irish Transport and General Workers' Union, which Larkin had founded in 1909. And when Larkin was jailed in 1913, James Connolly closed the Dublin port to bring about his release. James Connolly founded the Irish Citizens' Army, of which he was commandant. He was persuaded by the IRB to support the uprising, which he did, with 120 members. He was aged only 48 at his execution. He had six daughters and a loving relationship with his wife during the lean years of their early married life. The Central Statistics Office has produced a special publication highlighting life in Ireland around 1916, which says Ireland was experiencing a period of prosperity. This was due mainly to the positive economic effects of World War I, with a balance of trade surplus in 1916 of 1.5 million and a fiscal surplus of 11 million. The Irish economy at the time was dominated by four industries, agriculture, linen production, shipbuilding and brewing and distilling. The first three of these activities were positively impacted upon by the war with increased demand for food, linen and ships directly linked to the war effort. Clearly, this prosperity was not shared by all sectors of society, with many people in Dublin and the other cities experiencing extremely poor living conditions. Dublin was a city of extremes in housing in 1911, when 22% of dwellings were large homes with 10 or more rooms, and 36% were one-room tenements. By 1916, an estimated 130,000 men from Ireland had joined the British Army. Many men and women went to Great Britain to work in munitions factories and hospitals. The Irish economy in 1916 was by no means industrially backward. 
Ireland was in the group of middle-ranking industrialized countries, along with Portugal, the Scandinavian countries, Italy and the Netherlands. In 1911, there were 1,273,850 people at work, which had grown to 1,800,000 in 2011. In 1911, nearly half the workers were in agriculture, in comparison to just 5% in 2011. Just over a quarter of workers in 1911 worked in manufacturing jobs, compared to 8.6% in 2011. One in 10 workers in 1911 worked as a domestic servant, while in 2011 only a few thousand people were working as a domestic servant. Less than 0.3% of those at work. The professional group of occupations accounted for 8.8% of all workers in 1911. By 2011, this area of work had more than quadrupled, and the two groupings of professional technical and health workers and clerical managing and government workers accounted for just over 40% of all jobs. There has been a significant decline in the number of farms in Ireland. In 1915, there were 359,700 farms over one acre. And by 2010, this had declined to 139,860 farms over one hectare, equal to 2.5 acres, a reduction of over 60% in the number of farms. Between 1915 and 2010, there has been a 7% decline in the area farmed in Ireland, from 4,932 to 4,569,000 hectares. The average farm size in this country has more than doubled, increasing from 14 to 33 hectares, with the average farm size trebling in the counties of Louth, Dublin and Cavan. In the early decades of the 20th century, There was migration from Ireland to England, Scotland and Wales for seasonal employment during the harvest. Around 13,000 people migrated to Britain in 1914 for seasonal employment. Most of these migrants were from Mayo and Donegal. In 1911, 7,302 people emigrated from the island of Ireland, whereas in 2015, 80,900 people emigrated from the Republic of Ireland. The 1911 census shows a population of 3,139,688 compared to 4,588,252 a century later in 2011. And we owned 9,850 cars in 1915 compared to 1,900,000 cars in 2014. Together 
they bravely fought the Hun. Fathers, sons, and brothers in arms died never to return to their farms. Trenches were dug and barbed wire was laid to game and fire. The orders were obeyed. Men on both sides perished in the field. As no one wanted to compromise and yield. Christmas Eve in 'Cause no one wanted to compromise, are you?